All right. Thank you for listening to this uh, new podcast series, Trump Nations, uh, where we are going to go in depth and make sense of what happened with the insurrection with Trump voters. It was a big shock in 2016. How the hell did Trump win and who voted for him? And that's really lasted until now, 2021. And we have Dr. James Gardner from The Ohio State University. He's worked for the FBI. He's worked for the DEA. And uh, what I saw him working in was what I call the miracle in Lake Forest, where he ended up controlling the city council, outfunded by 100 to 1, by some really uh, deep-pocketed, well-funded people that have everything rigged. And the only, like, maybe year that I saw everything not rigged was uh, masterminded by this man, uh, Dr. James Gardner. And now he's uh, dove deep into uh, Trump, what Trump voters are, the insurrection. And all this is evidence-based, science-based, data-based. But at the same time, I see people jumping in on Twitter, any questions you have, uh, we're very much want to be interactive. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Gardner and I agreed in the beginning, many, many years ago, a decade when we met, is that people should be independent, right? That city council like Forest, uh, they sung like a canary because they were part of the same cartel, right? They, they all voted in a block and nobody had any independent thinking. And really, we're the most educated uh, public in the history of mankind. Uh, everybody should be able to formulate their own opinion and uh, freedom is not free. So if everybody's thinking the same and group think, right, it leads to a lot of things that we don't want in society. Another uh, problem we're fixing with this podcast is that I went to the Pointer Institute. Uh, I was taught by Dan Rather, John Chancellor, uh, working for the St. Pete Times and journalism has been complete. Uh, one side is liberal, one side is conservative. There isn't complete reporting and there isn't actual quotes talking to people, giving you the complete story. So in this podcast, that's another goal uh, we're going to achieve is completeness. Uh, thank you, Dr. Gardner. And what, what are your first words? Uh, well, first a correction. Well, thank you for having me. First a correction on a couple of things. I was uh, outspent 10 to one, not 100 to one. Well, I think in the totality of it all, if you think about it, right? It felt like 100 to 1. Well, your campaign, you had $12,000, right? And then Andrew Hamilton for the recall. And then it ended up being uh, $460,000 in expenditure. So you think all the money you spent in your campaign, plus $460,000, plus the $50,000 Voights had, and then all the money Robinson had, and then Nikki, when she ran, she had another twenty grand, uh, And then Tenemer. Spent yeah, fifty was, grand against you, and then who's paying uh, uh, well, the ballot harvest guys? Uh, if you add it all up, yeah, <laughs> any one election was only ten to one. But believe me, ten to one is it's enough. You know, you don't have to go to a hundred to one. Also, uh, I worked with the FBI and with the DEA, not for the DEA or for the FBI. I did though work for the police. I was a police consultant, getting paid directly. Uh, by the police, but with the DEA and the uh, FBI, I worked with them, but I wasn't actually employed by them. Got it, got it. So, you weren't in, so what's the difference between 
how did you get paid in that situation? So what's the difference between for and with? Uh, first, it's a lot of money. And uh, who's uh, paying you, though? Where was the money coming from? Well, if I'm when I was working for the police, the police department paid me. So they gave me a check. Right. Uh, I don't know, weekly or monthly or something like that for my services. Uh, with the uh, DEA, for example, the DEA wanted to set up a community-based drug enforcement uh, clinic when I was in uh, Columbus, Ohio. So uh, I was working with a community-based uh, nonprofit group then, and I liaised with the DEA in order to bring them in to the uh, setup that we had in order to be able to transition effectively um, so the nonprofit was paying. Yeah, and I wasn't then. I wasn't getting paid by anybody. I was just right, just working uh, to help the agencies go along. Right, right. So um, yeah, other other than that, it's it's pretty accurate. What we'll be doing here is a is more of a data based, uh, an empirical look at the issues. In this case, in this series, we're about to do. We're focused on the insurrection. Uh, going forward, we'll. Uh, take a look back at Trump nations and the um, uh, the people who voted for Trump and what they're like. Although I imagine that'll come into this discussion too. So this is going to yeah, be. Yeah, I, I had two podcasts with uh, Sarah Lynn Robinson. Now she's with The Ringer, and the last piece was missing right through the election. And I'm glad that I didn't finish it because it's almost like um, Einstein and the student. Uh, Einstein was giving the final exam and he gave his, uh, his uh, I forgot what you call him, but his student aide the papers. And the student aide said, Doc, you know, Dr. Einstein, you're brilliant and everything. However, this exam that you're giving your students this year is the exact same exact exam you gave them last year. And all these kids know each other, they've copied the answers and they're probably gonna cheat. So this is not going to be a really good uh, uh, final exam, and it's not going to be indicative of how good the students studied throughout the year. And I said, I said, don't worry about it, because the answers have changed <laughs> from this year to last year. <laughs> so the answers have changed, really, from the end of the election to now. I think there's a lot more information. And one thing I'm going to focus on, something that's always interests me, living uh, throughout the country. I was born in Los Angeles. 20 years in Florida, very different experience. To this day on Facebook, the, the, the answers, right, and the opinions. I uh, lived two years in Boston, lived three years in New York City, and then I, I lived uh, five years in Austin, Texas. And Austin was very fascinating to me because Austin is very different than the part, parts of Texas. And um, that area between Houston, Austin, and Dallas, they have great bumper stickers. And the ones that stick in my head would be a sticker that says, I was born in Dallas, but now I live in Austin by the grace of God, <laughs> right? But then you would go to Dallas and you would see a sticker that would say, I was born in Houston, but now I live in Dallas because of the grace of God. It, it, and it was very interesting, the culture, right? There's people that feel they're Texans. They're not Americans. They're not, uh, you know, anything else. They're Texans. And even people who spoke Spanish, they spoke 100% Spanish. And I'm like, oh, what part of Mexico are you from? They're like, no, 
I'm a Texan, right? That's Spanish. So I think culture is very interesting. And uh, what struck me is the culture of the exorationists and the different cultures involved in Trump voters. So that's something very interesting that I want to uh, explore. And then on Friday, we got a really good interview from somebody from Appalachia who very interested in Appalachian culture. And those uh, have been a big part of the, uh, the attempt, even though Hillbilly Illery and J.D. Vance, a lot of people feel that he hasn't given a complete picture of the culture of Trump voters. So yeah, and we'll certainly get into that in a lot of detail. At the moment, I want to kind of do a step-by-step -step walk through the insurrection. Uh, and today I want to focus on the election and how the election played into the um, into the riot. The next time we'll be looking at the riot and we're going to move slowly. Maybe some people might find it too slowly, but comprehensively through the entire insurrection so that at the end, people watching this series will actually know more than just about anybody else oh, yeah, absolutely. of the insurrection. But the point you, you make, I also want to reinforce that. So today is April the 19th. Right. And when I first, um, when I first created the, the insurrection book, uh, which is here and available on Amazon, that was in the middle of March. And by the middle of March to the middle of April, things have changed. So things are going to change. People are being arrested. New people are being arrested all the time. New information's coming out all the time. The information I'll be sharing today is information as of today. By Friday, it may change a little and it'll be based on Friday. So that's important to note. The other thing that's important to note uh, before we get going is that most of the people we'll talk about and whose pictures you'll see and the things we're going to talk about are all people who've been charged. And most of them have been arrested, but they haven't been convicted. And many of them have pleaded not guilty. So we shouldn't assume because I'll mention a name that this is a guy who is convicted of rioting or this guy used a weapon in the Capitol. Everything that I'll say, although obviously you and I won't say it because we'll get tired of saying it, is that it's alleged that, it's reported that, we saw videos of that. So none of this is conclusive. It'll all have to be redone once it's over and done with and people are convicted and the evidence is there. But in the meantime, there's so much we can learn about what's going on. It's well worthwhile uh, going into this even though we don't exactly know where we're going. Right, and uh, something Dr. Gardner and I agree on, uh, you know, details are important. So we've owned businesses and there's no such thing as an insignificant detail. So people that listen to the sports betting podcast, horse racing, true crime podcast. And, I, and one of the, another thing I like about Dr. Gardner that uh, he's older than I am, so he understands these references that I'll bring up, like Paul Harvey, right? I like giving the rest of the story, right? Uh, because it really is important. Sometimes it, it changes the whole uh, perspective of the story. And Dr. Gardner, I can throw things at, and it, this is not over his head, and he kind of gets it. And even though this is nuanced, um, it's very important in our horse racing true crime podcast we do. We talk about 
crime and regulation. And I'll go through this because Dr. Gardner will understand it. And the loyal, thank you for everybody who's been listening to the podcast network, uh, growing the network in knock on wood two years in, all of our ratings have been five-star ratings. So thank you for that. Gardner will understand that we talk about the finance, we talk about sports betting, um, horse racing to crime. And it's something that really hit home when Dr. Gardner was uh, mayor of Lake Forest and when he was on the city council, right? Uh, and culture has a lot to do with it well, as well. There's a big difference the way he just said between somebody being charged with a crime and somebody being convicted of a crime. We've also talked about in the horse racing to crime and I believe, and at the end of this, let me know if you agree with this, Dr. Gardner, as we set the ground rules like a trial, right? We set the ground rules moving forward. Uh, there's a huge difference as well between uh, justice, right? And the law, right? They're distant cousins at best. And there's a big difference between something that's unethical and something that's illegal. There's a big difference between something that might be immoral and illegal, right? And unethical. Now, one thing that I learned in the uh, uh, in the recall, when they recalled uh, Hamilton, and I went around and I spoke to about 4,000 people in this conservative uh, place that's home to Saddleback Church. And I was, in a way, I was surprised by these Christian types that said, hey, I expect uh, politicians to break the law as part of the deal. I'm like, oh, don't you go to church? Don't these people are, you know? So it's very interesting. So there are people that will do something they feel is immoral and unethical, but they would never do anything that's illegal, right? And there's people that would do all three. So I think it's very important to make a distinction with that. An example would be the, the city council, they would do something unethical and immoral, but it wasn't illegal and they were fine with it. As long as it wasn't illegal, they would do, you know, they would do it um, in regulations, right? Like in the horse racing industry, we talk about in the insurrection with Trump voters, uh, Trump's behavior, right? He gets a huge evangelical push, even though he's been married three times and he's cheated on almost every single business deal he's ever been in, but it's okay with him, right? Uh, it might be immoral, it might be unethical, but they don't care. So I think it's very important to make those uh, distinctions in life and your own local city boards and such as you gain perspective and you get insight and uh, what's going on with the interaction. What are your thoughts uh, on that? We'll, we'll hit on that many times. Uh, let's see if I can get this green up and get the first start of the program going with the uh, and this is the outline for um, for the election and can you see that on this we is that on the screen yes it's on the screen part one of the election okay part one of the election the reason we're starting with the election is uh, the major reason 
and in, the, in about uh, chapter six, <laughs> we're going to go specifically through the motivations people had. But I can tell you right now, the number one motivation that brought people into the rally and then into the riot was the belief that the election was stolen. So that's such a critical uh, motivator for the people who went there that we need to look at the election and start there rather than starting with the um, uh, with the riot per se. And I've broken that down into several issues like anticipating loss, the claims, the evidence from the courts, evidence from government agencies, opinions, electoral college, and et cetera. And that's will take about half an hour to give you information on that. And uh, I think it's important to know, even before the election occurred, as early as April 7th, 2020, Trump had already been laying the groundwork for the claim of election fraud. That's because uh, he knew once Biden was going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party, he was going to lose. He just, all of his pollsters, all of it said with, that Biden was a formidable opponent, which is why he went after Biden's son. In any event, we can trace back to April 7th, the first public statements by Trump that the election was going to be uh, fraught with fraud. And, right, now, uh, let me throw this narrative at you. At that point in time, it's almost like in a court case, uh, the, the narrative is important, the timeline. So right at that time in April, the Trump campaign was running out of money. Now, me personally, they are the original fundraisers of the first Trump victory in 2016, Laura Trump, who's now running for Senator in North Carolina, she fired all of them and her and uh, the girlfriend of uh, Don Jr., the former wife of Gavin Newsom, they take over the fundraising part and a lot of Republicans went after them. And at this point in time, uh, they're running out of money and their email list started targeting a lot of conspiracy groups, a lot of Taylor Green types for money. And the end of that story is that uh, right now they're sitting on $400 million from uh, these groups that they started targeting right there at that time in April that you're talking about, where they were running out of money, Trump campaign was almost broke, and uh, they felt they were going to lose. Well, it was not only the Trump campaign, but Republican campaigns everywhere were in trouble financially, not the least of, and there are so many causes for that. Uh, I have a Facebook page called Trump Nations, where I go through all the so-called accomplishments of the Trump administration, which are really no accomplishments at all. So by April 2020, not only was the pandemic a problem, but the fact clearly was he was not accomplishing what they said they were out to do. So all the Republicans were in trouble financially, not just uh, not just Trump. And they ended up doing well, though. The only one that lost was Trump, except for the Senate race. Well, they lost the Senate. Yeah, they did okay in the House, but they lost the Senate as well. So, and you can see in June of 2020, the Attorney General Barr started talking about counterfeit mail-in ballots. He had no evidence for that. In July, Trump said the mail-in voting was going to rig the elections. I don't know if you know this, but Trump's a, a mail-in voter. Right. Uh, in August, again, he repeated it. And so all along, 
almost six months before the election, they laid the groundwork for the only way I can lose if it's rigged. Sure enough, comes the election and what happens? He says he won, but he says it was rigged. And he then begins, uh, as all of us will recall, an enormous campaign in which he continuously talks about the fraud and in which people like uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, uh, verify it and uh, the lawyer, the woman lawyer, she gets up and talks about the Venezuela. And they've subsequently been sued for a billion dollars. And she, she today in April, she defended her remarks in December by saying that no sane person would have believed her. Therefore, she could have caused no damage to the company because no reasonable person would have believed what she was saying. But at the time, this was all part of an orchestrated campaign to try to keep Trump in power. And it was let, let me stop you there, because we skipped over something I think is going to be a theme of the whole series and something that's very important and something that I talk about a lot, actually, in the sports betting. Because usually when somebody gets a game wrong, it's never because they made the mistake. It's because of referees. It was because of this, that. They never want to admit the the mistake. So I call it the Hawthorne effect, whatever you review and measure and you're honest with, right? Uh, you improve its performance by 10 to 20%. But it's not as easy as it seems. It's brutal because as a guy, father knows best. So to admit that you're wrong is embarrassing. It's humili humiliating. All these feelings that you want to avoid, right? That just make you feel horrible, but they're true and you have to go through them. I often mentioned the movie 500 Days of Summer. I don't know if you've seen that. And it's this guy, he thinks he's doing better with this girl than he really thinks he is, right? So it's a good dramatization of what, something between you hope for and what reality is. And in preparing for the podcast, we talked about uh, this specific topic, and you call it cognitive dissonance, where... Uh, Again, people don't want to admit that they're wrong. People don't want to admit uh, that they're not, their race isn't superior to another race. <coughs> and it facilitates conspiracy theories, right? Uh, Taylor Green, right? Taylor Green would be the perfect example saying, you know, uh, George Soros sent moonbeams to the cost of California fires. And then he sent signals to change votes from the minion machines from Trump, from Biden to Trump, right? And these people believe this conspiracy theories and others, QAnon. And these are, A, number one in my mind, is they're the people that have uh, created the $400 million war chest for Trump. Yeah, well, they, they believe his claims. Why wouldn't they? I mean, right. the president of the United States and, uh, but when he took him to court, you know, he had uh, the evidence from the courts. He had 60 lawsuits got, uh, got advanced by him or his people. Of those 60 lawsuits, I think half of them they actually pulled before they got decided because they were so ridiculous in the first place. And then they proceeded to virtually to lose them all. Uh, in some cases, a judge says the plaintiffs plaintiff's interpretation of events is incorrect and not credible. Right. The one I like the best is this one in November 2020, 
uh, in Pennsylvania, the judge says, this claim like Frankenstein's monster has been haphazardly stitched together. This court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations unpled in the operative complaint and unsupported by evidence. Time after time after time, they lost every single case. Not now, only did they lose every single case, but the government agencies, uh, William Barr, the attorney general, and uh, Chris Krebs, who was the head of Homeland Cybersecurity, both federal agencies, both of them appointed by Trump, both of them Republicans, both of them said no, there was, there was no fraud. Uh, there's always irregularities, but there was no fraud and nothing that would constitute any reason to doubt the election. So you, right. despite Trump's media campaigns, all of the investigations, uh, all of the lawsuits, then he started working on the investigations in the states, getting the uh, secretaries of state and getting the uh, electoral boards. And he failed on those. There was not a single electoral board or secretary of state. Sometimes they did it two or three times, recounts, where anything changed. As a result of that, even the opinions of the Republicans began to change one by one, you see lists here of Adam Kinzinger, uh, uh, Mitt Romney, the Republicans, even staunch Republicans began to one by one admit that Biden has won. As this is developing and going into December and Trump tried to get the electoral college to the states to change the electoral college electors, which is something they couldn't do and they didn't do, so his last ditch attempt to try to keep in power was to be able to interfere with the Electoral College meeting in January 6th. And that's what made, uh, up until then, the Electoral College had met, they had certified, and they now simply had to go on January 6th to a joint session of Congress where the two houses would get together, decide basically to accept because there's really no alternative. Right. The results and certify that Biden would win. This is a map of right. you know, what the electoral college. Yeah. I want to stop you there and take one step back just to be comprehensive. Sure. Now, this game plan by Trump was first started in 2008, 2007. And we can measure, right? People from Acorn, uh, it was a grassroots organization. What they would do is they would fill out welfare applications for people in minority neighborhoods, and they would register them to vote and then and, and, uh, intimidate them, make them vote for the union and vote for Democrats. <laughs> That's what that all started uh, with Obama. And uh, Trump has never let it go. Now we're in 2021, he's still talking about it. And he felt that irregularities like that happen in every election. However, the fraud that happened in the 2020 election was not enough to overturn the votes in specifically Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which were the five battleground states that determined, determined the outcome of the election 
because of the Electoral College. And I'm going to show a picture in the next podcast of John Claycomb. Now, J John Claycomb was in a precinct that Dr. Gardner was running in. And out of the 10 precincts, Dr. Gardner was one or was tied. He lost in two precincts by uh, every other precinct was like 50-50. These two precincts, he one lost 70 to 30%. And the other one, the one I was in, the one that I have direct evidence in, he lost, I think it was like 50. 57 to 43 was the margin. So John Clayton came in uh, my viewpoint with 10 ballots and he stuffed them in the box. Then he started talking and influencing people in line illegally to vote against Dr. Gardner's opponent. So that's when I take my phone out, of course, and take a picture of him doing so. So that's ballot harvesting, that's totally illegal. And that's what Trump has accused people of doing on a wide scale. The other uh, election fraud that I have direct evidence is, is a recording of Orange County Supervisor Don Wagner. And he sent out a robocall. And in the robocall, uh, he says number four, uh, pick number four if you're okay with someone coming over to your house and filling out your ballot for you. That's 100% illegal. And this Don Wagner guy supports uh, Scott Voigt that uh, Dr. Garner ran against and served on city council with, and he's been his employee for 15 years. So those are the ballot irregularities and ballot fraud and election fraud that I have direct evidence of, right? There's two types of evidence. Direct evidence that you see with your eyes. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Kind of stuff happens all the time. Right. You know, you need to you need to keep in mind in this a dozen votes here, a hundred votes there, maybe even a thousand votes happen that way. Uh, Donald Trump lost by over seven million votes. Right. It was one of the largest losses, I think the second largest loss in the 21st century. There was only however, yeah, but to mitigate that. 46,000 votes go the other way, right? And remember when he was uh, shaking down, the Secretary of State in, uh, in Georgia, he kept saying 10,000. <laughs> so you yeah, take 40,000 votes, yeah. It never comes to that many that's yeah. in any one precinct or in any one area. So he, he lost convincingly and uh, over and over again, whether it was the courts or the government agencies or the recounts or the investigations by the secretaries of state. He kept losing, but his last ditch attempt was to try to convince the members of Congress somehow to do something that was out of their power to do. Okay, so <laughs> let me ask you this. Let yeah. me ask you this. Right, we're at this point, right? In the phrase I like, that I would let, you know, that I would say to, to stop the steal people. Yes, there was fraud, right? And they should look at fraud kind of in your election, like a city council election where you lost by 400 votes. What John Claycom did possibly could have determined the outcome, but not in this case. There were not, there wasn't enough fraud, right? There wasn't enough fraud out there to change the outcome. So now what's going through the mind? A lot of the fraud cases, when they finally produce the report, 
I believe as many fraud cases were on Trump's behalf as they were on Biden's behalf. So there was no clear cut. The Democrats are up to mischief. Everybody was up to mischief. Everybody is always up to mischief. I think in Pennsylvania, I, kinda, I think it might have been like a 20,000 vote swing where they found Trump fraud versus Biden fraud. But so now let me think of this because you're the you're the psychotherapist, right? We know for a fact there aren't enough votes to overturn the election. It's January 6th, right? What is going through the mind of Josh Hawley and what's going through the mind of Ted Cruz? Both uh, Harvard, Ivy League educated lawyers who won cases in front of the Supreme Court. They're not dummies. You and I know there wasn't enough votes to overturn the election, right? There wasn't enough fraud to overturn the election. Why are they at January 6th raising money from the insurrectionists? And why are they still insisting um, uh, arbitrating or, or arguing against what you and I see clear cut and obvious? Yeah, you know, there's um, desperate people under desperate circumstances do crazy things. Right. And, you know, when you look at the, their history and you go back, you see at each point they made the wrong turn and the wrong turn now they're so far down the chain right there's nothing left to do but total craziness uh so at the point that they're at and given where all the bad decisions they've made to get there what they're doing doesn't actually look quite so crazy it only looks crazy if you have the perspective of going back and seeing well how the hell did you get here Right. That's crazy. But now that you're here, what can you do? Well, that's not so crazy. And I think that's what you're, what you're seeing there um, uh, is that example of they've put themselves so far into a corner, there really is no way out, uh, possible way out. So they've chosen a crazy way out, a crazy way which would have been illegal, by the law, I mean, they begged Pence to somehow intervene. There's no authority for him to intervene. They begged the people to not accept the votes. There's no authority for them to not accept the vote. The electoral, the joint session of Congress did have the authority to challenge the votes. They could have delayed it by challenging the votes and then requiring the body to come back and decide on the vote. But given where they were with the court evidence, the reinvestigations, the secretaries of state, the electoral boards, there was no evidence that could survive to justify challenging the votes, although they could have delayed it by challenging the votes and might have, interestingly enough, had the riot not occurred. But given that the riot occurred, it didn't happen. So there really was no possibility of any other outcome on January the 6th. Right now, so with that foundation, let me know what you think about this email. So Laura Trump sends out an email to 500 militia groups, uh, QAnon groups, um, and uh, there's even a, a recording that we can't 
play, but I played it for Dr. Gardner. Why did she send out an email saying, hey, uh, 1776, we're going to change the outcome of the election January 6th, reserve your spot, it's only for $200. And we'll have, we have a guest speakers, we have Mo Brooks, we have uh, Don Jr., we have uh, Donald Trump, the president's going to be there, just send you 200 bucks, send 100 bucks for being outside, and we're going to make history, we are going to change the outcome of the election, book it. Now, again, desperate people under desperate circumstances. They were hoping uh, the same way people, when the when your football team is losing by right. points and you got a minute left, yeah, maybe they can score uh, two touchdowns in a minute. It's maybe happened once before. Right. They were just desperately hoping that somehow the riot and the insurrection would scare the representatives and the senators into doing something they were unable to do. So it was right. desperate thoughts and desperate measures. But I it's part of the culture too, right? My team against your team, right? And then the, you see the fights. Let me know what you think about this, right? Are these the same people that they, they, they get in fights in Little League games, their Little League team loses and they start fighting the other parents? Or like you say, they lose the game and they start fighting the fans from the other team? They have such a belief in their team that uh, the facts really don't matter. And, it, and it's just an irrational approach, right? The facts don't matter. And I think in the back of their mind, because there is evidence uh, dug up by the FBI, and it was even in plain sight before the FBI had to dig it up, that they were planning, if this failed, it looked like they were planning something more serious. Dare I say a military coup I, you know, I don't want to say a military coup, but there seems to have been another meeting planned for later that month, which if this one failed, the next meeting would have been much more violent. And many of the people that we'll be talking about later who were arrested went home and applied for firearm weapons. Many of them, there are lots of... Uh, emails and uh, Facebook uh, tweets in people anticipating that in two weeks they were going to come back and it was going to be a far more violent um, uh, encounter. An encounter in which it would not have been impossible, highly unlikely, but not impossible for someone like President Trump to say, under the conditions we really can't transition the government. We'll have to rule until we get it under control. I think that was their... Well, supposedly there was a meeting with... Hail Mary. With uh, Michael Flynn, who he gave a pardon to. And, uh, and I'll put links on the episode notes to all the reporting that we mentioned, right? So one link I'll put was the plot that he also got a pardon for Michael Flynn, his brother, illegally kidnapped a dissident from Turkey, and they were paid by the government of Turkey to kidnap this guy. Totally illegal. Michael Flynn got away with it because he's Michael Flynn, but the opposition in Turkey made a big stink about it. The guy ended up dead. It was almost like a Hernan Khashoggi thing that was orchestrated by Michael Flynn and his brother. All right. So there's a lot of dealings back and forth. Michael Flynn, uh, he got uh, a pardon for this as well, but when you're doing official business with another government, 
you have to apply as a foreign agent. And Michael Flynn didn't do any of that. Fast forward to Michael Flynn uh, was one of the big guys of the Republican convention 2016 and in that campaign of lock her up, lock her up. He used to have those fiery speeches of locking up Hillary Clinton. Michael Flynn then becomes, I think it was like Secretary of State, but it didn't last long because uh, he hadn't registered as a foreign agent and he was talking to prominent Russians that are in the Mueller report. And finally, now after the fact, uh, the Ukrainian oligarch was giving campaign reports from Michael Flynn and Manafort, which both of them important, to Vladimir Putin in his offices. Last week, we'll put that link to that. So Michael Flynn, during this time, Dr. Gardner's talking about, reportedly from people that were in the meeting, and we'll put those links from the New York Times, suggested to Donald Trump that he should figure out a way to institute martial law. And under martial law, that way was their crazy plan. <laughs> the crazy part to me about this meeting, supposedly Sidney Powell was there. <laughs> yes, Sidney Powell, Giuliani, <laughs> and Michael Flynn uh, advising Trump of all this nonsense. Yeah, I honestly believe this was in the back of their mind, but that's pure speculation on my part. I mean, or or like, or there was say circumstantial evidence, right? Because I just explaining to you who Michael Flynn is, and now Michael Flynn is in this meeting, and people are reporting to him, right, that he should set up a scenario, which six was a perfect scenario to set up to institute martial law. So in a way, a good lawyer out there would say that's pretty good circumstantial evidence, maybe not direct evidence, but circumstantial evidence. Looking yeah, at the timeline, know, what you're saying. It's hard to know. And again, it's, you know, desperate people under desperate circumstances. Right. They put themselves January 6th, almost regardless of what happened, unless they had actually burned down the Capitol and unless they had actually gotten inside and killed people. Short of that, what they did was not sufficient to keep Trump in office. Had well, it, been, it was a secession, right? Because well, that's it, why- even worse, we'll go, uh, I'm not sure if we'll do this on the next episode or the following episode, but they had weapons and explosives. They had, they were prepared to do far worse than they actually did in there, but for the grace of God and a couple of mistaken steps and people forgetting things, they didn't do what they did, but they came prepared to do much worse than they actually did. And had- well, the line of secession, right? Because I've gone through my mind and uh, listened to media out there. Uh, how do you pull off a coup, right? You would have to kill well, you, Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence, you'd hang Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this was all stuff, they weren't even hiding the efforts to do that. And right. But later on, we'll go, through, we'll go through examples of correspondence between these people. Killing and capturing these people was part of the plan. They weren't able to do it. Had they right. been able to do it, that might have been the justification for a military. Um, and that's when McConnell would have came into play. And I don't know who is the fourth in line of, of secession. It might have been somebody like Mike Pompeo. Well, uh, there's no succession. Donald Trump would just stay. 
but he wouldn't transition the government because it was too fraught with difficulties. So I think that's- but Congress, yeah, the, even if they killed Pelosi, the Democrats would have had a majority in Congress, so they would just name a new speaker. But not for martial law. Would, yeah. Not if they declared martial law. The martial law that Abraham Lincoln, uh, another Republican, although a very different Republican, right. Abraham Lincoln declared martial law during the Civil War. And during that time, he suspended habeas corpus, he suspended trials, he did all kinds of things that he felt were necessary to keep the nation whole. Uh, that was a precedent that Donald Trump could have adopted had the January 6th riot been much worse than it was. And it well, they had to kill the line of secession. And I think the problem he had to- no, There is no secession. Trump is still there. He, there's no one to succeed. Trump is still in office. The same way Lincoln was in office. Lincoln declared- Well, until January 20th, right. Yeah, Trump would have simply declared martial law and stayed and suspended the election until such time that the government had been restored. So Right. So the problem he had, and it's the problem he had during the riots, was that Milley, right, in the generals in the military, none of them went along with him. They didn't have to go along with him. Had they succeeded, had the had the insurrectionists succeeded in killing and burning, that would have been enough justification to declare martial law. They yeah, but enforcing martial law. So you can declare martial law, but if the military declines to enforce it, then he's, he's out of luck. And then he would have been out January 20th. You know that Lincoln faced the same problem and the military went along with him. The right, that's the key. Of obeying the commander in chief even when they don't like what he's doing. George right. McClellan, who was a general and who later ran against Lincoln, uh, you know, still obeyed Lincoln because he was the commander in chief, even though McClellan later ran against him in 64 and lost. So right. I think these were the crazy ideas going on. And this is the background to the riot, which is the topic we'll dis be discussing Right. Next Friday, this coming Friday at 12 o'clock, right? Yeah, this coming Friday at 12 o'clock. So we're going to talk about January 6th, the Capitol riots on that one. All right, that'll be a in-depth discussion of the riot. All right. Okay, great. Thank you, and I'll see you then. All right, so I always close with uh, a guy who got us through World War II. <laughs> insurrection and face all kinds of problems in the uh, British Parliament. Winston Churchill, you make a living from your labor, but you make a life from what you give. So thank you for listening to our podcast series. Hi. Not for me, one second. That's why this one don't cost $800 and that goes $200. I don't know what that cost, I'm just shaking the word. That's why.